Matthew 3, verse 1. It says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for Yahweh. Make his paths straight. John himself had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were flocking to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to the place of his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance, and don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Even now the axe is ready to strike the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to take off his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn up with fire that never goes out. Then Yeshua came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. Yeshua answered him, Allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him to be baptized. After Yeshua was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And there came a voice from heaven, This is my beloved Son. I take delight in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that you would touch this sermon. I pray that, uh, Father, you would lead me and guide me in what to say. And Father, I pray that I'd make it easy to comprehend and that we would all gain something out of this teaching today. Father, y'all on this important topic. We glorify you and we praise you. Through your Son we pray. Amen. As I said last week, I want to start talking about baptism today. And it's a very important topic. And so we want to begin on studying about baptism. And there are many baptisms in the Bible, but we're going to study about water baptism. Okay, so when you hear me say baptism, know that I'm talking about Water baptism. The Bible teaches us about water baptism. So if the Bible teaches us about it, that means we ought to know about it, right? It means it's important. Uh, when we look up the words baptize or baptism or, or baptized in a concordance and we go through all the scriptures that refer us to those words, we see that it is of extreme importance. Just one, for, for example, in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4 in part, I just want to read this verse. This is one of many. It says, quote, All of us who were baptized into the Messiah, Yeshua, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism. End of quote. When we read that passage in Romans 6, and it talks about being buried with Christ, 
in our baptism, we see that that's very important. It has to do with the, the burial of the Messiah or the death of the Messiah. So that's one of many, many scriptures in the Bible that teach us the importance of baptism. By way of introduction, and I want to title this sermon, Baptism, an Introduction and Its Origin. But by way of introduction, I want to say, though, I want to make this very clear, that the Bible does not teach that everybody that gets baptized is regenerate. There is a difference between regeneration or being born again and being baptized. Some people make them one and the same thing, and I think there is a process there, but there is a difference between a person that is being that has been, excuse me, regenerated and gets baptized versus one that has just gotten baptized and has not been regenerated. And this sometimes poses a problem with people because it's similar, it's not the same, but it's similar to the doctrine of asking Jesus into your heart to be saved. Now, there's not one verse in the Bible that says that that's how we get saved, is to ask Christ into our heart. That's very prevalent. That's popular. That's what most people would teach you to do in order to get saved, but there's not one Bible verse that teaches that. Now, baptism is similar to that. It's not the same. It's not the same because the Bible does teach that baptism is part of salvation. So it's not the same as that one doctrine, but it's similar in this instance. It's similar in this instance. Sometimes people are baptized, but they're not saved. They're not saved. And sometimes people treat parts of salvation as though they were like a one-time thing, a free get-out-of-hell card, um, a flu shot, something akin to that. In other words, like, oh, are you saved? Well, yeah, I've been baptized, so yeah, I don't have anything to worry about. Or are you saved? Yeah, I've asked him into my heart, so I don't have anything to worry about. People treat parts of salvation like that. And although baptism is extremely important, everybody that is baptized that doesn't automatically mean that they're saved. It doesn't mean that at all. Now, do I believe that baptism is linked in Scripture with the forgiveness of sins? Yes, I do. Absolutely. It definitely is linked in the Bible with the remission or the forgiveness of sins. But that doesn't mean that every single person that is baptized is doing so genuinely. It doesn't mean that they've done so genuinely. Some people are baptized for unscriptural reasons. Some people might be baptized because of peer pressure from a preacher or from a friend or even from adult acquaintances. You know, somebody hears a message about baptism and immediately they say, well, I want to get baptized. That's not always a bad thing. But just know this. Know this, that if Yahweh isn't working continuously in your life after your baptism, there's a good chance that all you did was got into a body of water and got wet. I baptized, not a whole lot of people, but I baptized probably a dozen or so people. I believe some of the people that I baptized are truly regenerated. They're truly saved. But I believe that some people that I baptized are not regenerated at all. And I determined that by what we're going to get to in a second about the fruits that are consistent with repentance. Baptism is part and linked with salvation. And I've seen some people that I've baptized go on to be conformed to the image of the Son of Yahweh and they'll continue to be conformed to the image of the Son of Yahweh until the day that they die. However, some people that I have dunked under the water have come up 
unregenerated. Because the power is not in the water, the power is in Yahweh working on a heart and on a mind. Alright? So I want to make that very clear. Some people get baptized because of a show of the flesh. They desire to be seen or looked at. And so they get baptized. And then some people get baptized because they think that's just what they have to do. I was baptized as a child at eight years old. I look back now, I had absolutely no clue as to what I was doing. No clue whatsoever. There was no genuine belief or repentance on my part. I was doing that because that's what I knew. That's how I was trained. That's how I was taught. Of course, later on in my life, Yahweh, I believe, has pricked my heart and put genuine repentance there, genuine sorrow for sin. I really recognize that I'm a sinner apart from His grace. I really recognize that I needed Him to save me. I needed Him to find me. And so, based upon that repentance and that belief and that faith that I had in my heart, it wasn't just a baptism because this is what Dad told me or Mom told me or this is what the preacher necessarily said. It was done because I wanted to obey the Bible. I wanted to do what Yahweh teaches about baptism in the Bible. You see that? There's a big difference there between the two. So just know and keep in mind that although baptism is very important, if it is not followed up with a life that is continuously being conformed to the image of the Son of Yahweh, then it means absolutely zero. Zero it means. Somebody thinks that they're okay and they've got to get out of hell card like I mentioned because they've just been baptized and they can live any way that they want to, means zero. There has to be fruit in consistency with the baptism and in consistency with the repentance. It's just like repentance. Repentance, I believe, is the key to salvation. True repentance, I believe. Because it means a change of mind, a change of direction. But there can be worldly repentance rather than godly sorrow or godly repentance. There can be. There can be tears shed and somebody may feel a little bit bad morally or ethically, but not understand that they violated the holy law of a holy God and that they need to be saved from the wrath of Yahweh. They not understand that. And they have a little little tear or a little repentance and they go out and they continuously do the same things that they just repented over. That's not true repentance, brothers and sisters. It's not true repentance. True water baptism is preceded by true faith and by true repentance. And true faith and repentance doesn't just lead a person to be baptized. It leads a person to follow Yeshua and to pattern their lifestyle after Him. To look and watch how He did and how He walked and how He lived and how He talked and to do the same in their life. That's when you know, hey, this person was truly baptized for the remission of sins. This person had truly repented for the remission of sins. How do I know that? Because you see them being conformed to the image of the Messiah. So you know that it was true, it was genuine, it was real. That's my way of introduction. I want you to keep that in mind as we go along. Don't think that just because you do a little work that everything's okay. You know, people come down to an altar and they think that that makes everything all right. I'm not, I'm not against praying. I'm not necessarily against coming down to the front of a church and praying at all. 
But that doesn't just make everything okay. Just getting ducked underwater doesn't make everything okay. That doesn't mean you can live any way that you want to live. So that's why when we when we baptize a person, we need to make sure that they understand, listen, what you're doing here, you're giving a public profession of the faith and the repentance that's felt in your heart. And what you're saying when you're getting baptized is, I'm not going to live the way that I used to live. I'm not going to do the things of the old man anymore. That's what you're saying when you're getting baptized. When everybody else goes off and does sin, I'm not going to do that. That's what this means. That's what this stands for. My baptism is real. It means something to me. It's not just water. It's not just the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, as 1 Peter 3, 20-21 says. But it's the answer of a good conscience toward Yahweh. It's a spiritual thing. The circumcision made without hands, Colossians 2 says. It's got to be real. It's got to be genuine. It's got to be heartfelt and mindfelt in order for it to be true. Not just going through a ritual or through emotion. Animal sacrifices were always a great thing in Old Covenant Israel. A great thing. There were times when Yahweh was fed up with animal sacrifices. Because what He wanted, He wanted His children to obey Him. He said, you obey me and then I will delight in your calves and your bulls and your goats. But obey me. Obey me. Don't think that you can disobey me and bring a sacrifice and everything's just going to be okay. Treat Him the same way today. Except we've substituted those sacrifices for things like prayer and baptism that are not genuine. We think that we can live any way that we want to live. Listen, if you're a Christian, a follower of the Messiah, You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Nobody is free the way that the world defines freedom. You will serve somebody. And either you're going to serve Yahweh or you're going to serve Satan. And if you're not serving Yahweh, then you are serving Satan because there is no in-between. That's what's happened in your life. You've got to be genuine. You've got to be real. Baptism has to stand for something. I'm a new man. The old man was buried and the new man is resurrected to walk in the newness of life. And I'm walking and I'm living by the Spirit. Therefore, I'm not going to do the deeds of the flesh. Brother Jerry called me up a while back and said, Brother Matthew, do you know how you know that you are led by the Spirit? I said, how is that, brother? He said, if you don't fulfill the desires of the flesh. That is true. This is why the Bible says in Galatians, if you be led by the Spirit, then you are not under the law. Why? Because the Spirit leads you to obey the law. So therefore, if you're led by that Spirit, you're not up under that law anymore. You're free from that law. Right? You're free from the law of sin, the law of death. Hallelujah. But you're not free in the sense of the world's definition of free. You are bound to the blood of Christ. He has bought you with the blood of His own Son, Acts 20.28 says. So you are not your own. You can't do what you want to do. You do what He wants you to do. That's the freedom that you live in. But let that be an introduction to the doctrine of baptism so that we don't treat it like a flu shot. You think that it just makes everything okay. I don't want my children to think that just because their daddy baptizes them that they've got a free ticket to the kingdom of heaven. I want them to understand the importance of baptism, but I want them to know that if they don't live like Yeshua lived, 
they're not saved. Because a true, genuine regeneration in their heart produces true, genuine works. The Bible says in James 2, 24, Elijah, you see then, brethren, how that by works a man is justified and not by faith alone. Faith that is true produces action. Every single time. If it doesn't produce action, it's no better off than the demons that believe in one God and shudder but don't have any works. The origin of baptism. I want you to know that baptism existed before the time of the Messiah. We tend to look at water baptism as originating with what we're familiar with today in the church world. And what I mean by that is baptism into the Messiah, or what some people call Christian baptism. We look upon the practice as something that followers of the Messiah did, and that's accurate. But we shouldn't look at baptism as something that originated with the followers of Yeshua, as though that's when it came into existence, water baptism, because it didn't. That's not where it originated. And a lot of times, this part of a message or sermons on baptism is overlooked. The origin of it. Where did it come from? Was it just something that just popped into thin air at the time of the Messiah? Well, no, it wasn't. And we saw this, first and foremost, in our text that we opened up with in Matthew chapter 3. We saw this with John's baptism. It was a water baptism, wasn't it? It was at the river Jordan. Let's go back to the text in Matthew 3. Verse 2 in Matthew chapter 3 has John the Baptist preaching for people to repent in light of the coming kingdom. If you want to be part of the kingdom, then you've got to repent. You've got to change your direction. That's what John's saying. You've got to quit living for Satan. You've got to start living for Yahweh. Now, I want you to notice that the title, The Baptist, follows John or Yohanan in Hebrew, which was what he would be known by at that time. It follows John's name, and it's not John's last name. It's not John's surname. It's the title of John. He was John the Baptist, or John the one who did baptizing. John the Baptizer. John the Immerser. That was a title that was attached to his name, and I believe it was because there was something peculiar, something unique about John's baptism, which we'll get to at a later time. In verses 5 through 6, we see that many people from Jerusalem and Judea and around the Jordan area were coming to listen to John preach, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, and it says they were confessing their sins. So this is a water baptism, and this baptism had to do with the confession of the sin. This is prior to the time of the the Messiah's baptism, (laughs) baptism into Christ. This is prior to that. It precedes that. It's a baptism unto repentance, the Bible teaches us, John's baptism is. As the people are being baptized, they're confessing their sins. And verse 11 corroborates this understanding because it says, it has John saying, I baptize you with water for repentance. So it's a water baptism unto repentance, confessing of sin. Look now at verse 8. He tells the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were around him there in verse 8 to produce fruit consistent with repentance. Notice that John recognizes repentance produces works of righteousness. That's why when somebody tells me they repent and it doesn't produce works of righteousness, I know that they're lying to me. I know that they're not telling the truth. They might have had a little bit of sorrow, may have asked for forgiveness, but they didn't repent. Repent means you don't go back and practice that same thing again. That's what that means. So don't confuse repentance with asking for forgiveness and confession. Repentance is a change in one's mind, a change in one's direction, according to John. 
So he's not just preaching for people to come and get water baptized and then go on their merry way and never think about spiritual matters. John's not doing that. He's saying, bring forth fruit that is consistent with repentance. John goes on to say in verse 9 that one should not think they're okay because Abraham is their ancestor. See, just because a person can trace their physical bloodline to Abraham doesn't mean that they're okay and they're in good standing with Yahweh. Doesn't mean that at all. And that's what John is telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says, listen, don't, don't tell me that Abraham's your father. Yahweh's able of the stones that are here in front of me to raise up children to Abraham. In other words, don't think that your lineage is, it makes everything okay. That's the whole point of Romans 9, isn't it? That's the whole point. Just because you're of a physical descent from Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob doesn't mean that you're automatically going to have salvation. It's those that Yahweh elects. Those that Yahweh calls. It's not of him that willeth or of him that runneth, but it's of Yahweh that shows mercy. You might say, well, I'm a descendant of Abraham, but the Bible says, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. So just because you're an Ishmaelite or a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean anything. Then you might say, well, I'm a descendant of, of Isaac. But he said, Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? They were twins from the same father and mother. One was not called. One was called. So he tells the Pharisees, don't tell me about your physical lineage. I want to see some fruit that's consistent with repentance if you're going to get baptized by me. This is a baptism of repentance. Verse 10 shows that every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down, means destroyed, and thrown into the fire. And that doesn't sound like a good happening to me. Does it to you? You know, every tree, the tree represents the, the people. Everyone that doesn't produce fruit is cut down and it's cast into the fire. <clears throat> now look at verses 13 through 17. Here we see the Messiah being baptized in water in the Jordan River. All right? Yeshua comes to be baptized by John, by Yohanan, the immerser, the baptizer. John recognizes Yeshua's supremacy to him. He says, I need to be baptized of you, Master. But verse 15 has the Messiah calling what he was doing as fulfilling righteousness. He says, no, John, allow it for now. Let's fulfill righteousness. So the Messiah is calling water baptism, John's baptism, righteousness. He's calling it righteousness. This is the Son of Yahweh right here. The Messiah has called it righteousness, then it's righteousness. It's righteousness. In fact, in Luke 7, 18 through 30, I won't turn there, but if you're taking notes, Luke 7, 18 through 30, we see Yeshua praise John the Baptist as being a prophet and more than a prophet. And Luke 7, 29 through 30 specifically says this, quote, And when all the people, including the tax collectors, <clears throat> heard this, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John's baptism. But since the Pharisees and experts in the law had not been baptized by him, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. End of quote. That calls John's baptism the plan of Yahweh, the plan of God. And the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected that counsel, not being baptized of John. So it's a righteous act. John's baptism is a righteous act. And we know this furthermore because after the baptism we're told that a voice spoke from heaven and that voice said, this is my beloved son. So we know that that voice is the father speaking about his son. It's not the father talking about himself. The father talking about his son. 
He said, this is my beloved son. I take delight in him. I love him. He's my son. So what do we have here? Well, in Matthew 3, 1 through 17, we have water baptism preceding baptism into the Messiah. This is before anybody's ever baptized into the Messiah's death. And this is a true, genuine, righteous water baptism. John obviously came before Yeshua. We know he was six months older than the Messiah. Elizabeth bore John, right? Miriam bore the Messiah. John was six months older according to the birth narrative there in in the Gospel according to Luke. And we know that John practiced water baptism. Thus, water baptism was practiced before the disciples of Yeshua the Messiah. Before we get into anything in the book of Acts, anything in the book of Romans, Colossians, any of the epistles of the New Testament, any of the sayings of Christ after His resurrection, before all that happens, we have a baptism unto repentance. It's John's baptism. It's a righteous thing according to the Bible. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think that John just all of a sudden made this up? John just woke up one day and he said, okay, I'm going to go out and preach to people and I'm going to duck them under some water. You think that John made it up? I don't believe so. I don't believe that John made it up at all. We see various baptisms in the Hebrew Scriptures. When we talk about the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Covenant, the tabernacle, or the temple, we almost, all times, immediately think about animal sacrifices. They're mentioned a lot in the Old Testament Scriptures. In the Hebrew Scriptures, they're mentioned a lot. But what we often do not know, or else we do not think about, is the many baptisms that took place during the time of the Old Covenant. Did you know that there were baptisms in the Old Covenant? This is the origin of water baptism. For instance, in Hebrews 9, verse 10, the Bible speaks about various washings, and the Greek word there for washings has to do with to be baptized, or baptizo there in the Greek. Various washings. And when you read the context of Hebrews 9, it's talking about washings during the Old Covenant. Washings for the priesthood. Washings for people that were unclean. These are called baptisms in Hebrews 9, verse 10. Look at Exodus chapter 29. I don't know how far we'll get with this today, but we'll get a little bit into it at least. Exodus chapter 29, verses 1 through 5. Listen to this. Now we have to remember that this was given to Moses during his 40-day fast, during his first 40-day fast. Moses went up on the mountain in Exodus 24. A cloud received him there into the mountain. And he's speaking with Yahweh, and Yahweh's giving him the instructions about the tabernacle. And this continues on all the way through the end of Exodus, pretty much, almost, I should say. And in Exodus 29, part of the instructions that Yahweh tells Moses is this. This is what you are to do for them to consecrate them to serve me as priests. Take a young bull and two unblemished rams with unleavened bread, unleavened cakes, mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers coated with oil. Make them out of fine wheat flour, Put them in a basket and bring them in a basket. Along with the bull and two rams, bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then take the garments and clothe Aaron with the tunic, the robe for the ephod, the ephod itself, and the breastpiece. Fasten the ephod on him with its woven waistband. I want you to notice in verse 4 that before the holy clothes are put upon Aaron and his sons, Yahweh has commanded Moses to wash them with water. This isn't a washing away for the filth of the flesh, brothers and sisters. This isn't. This is a purification rite. Look with me now 
to Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 through 21. Before we read that, I want to quote to you what a man by the name of John Gill, who is an old commentator on the Bible, says about this passage in Exodus 29. He says, quote, And shalt wash them with water. Out of the laver, after mention, which stood between the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. The Targum of Jonathan says, This washing was performed in forty seahs of living or spring water, which was sufficient for the immersion of the whole body, which it is highly probable was the case. And so Jarkey interprets it of the dipping of the whole body, and which seems to have been necessary upon their entrance upon their entrance on their office, to denote their complete purity and holiness, though afterwards when they entered on service they only washed their hands and feet. End of quote. Look look at Exodus chapter thirty now. The first mention in Exodus 29 mentions washing them. I believe that's referring to them as a whole. A full immersion of their body in water. After that took place, each time that they were to go into the tabernacle, Yahweh gave these instructions in Exodus 30, 17 through 21. Yahweh spoke to Moses, Make a bronze basin for washing and a bronze stand for it. Set it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Now, if it's between the tent of meeting and the altar, that means it's inside the tabernacle. You go into the tabernacle, and before you get to the brazen altar that's in the holy place, not the most holy place, but that's in the holy place, you have the bronze laver on a basin. And water was put in it. And the basin must have been big enough for full immersion, or, as this text says also, to wash the hands and the feet. Look with me at verse 19. Aaron and his sons must wash their hands and feet from the basin. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister by burning up an offering to Yahweh, they must wash with water so that they will not die. They must wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a permanent statute for them, for Aaron and his descendants throughout their generations. So here we have the washings not of them as a whole, but the washings of the hands and the feet. And it's very important. Because he says they're to do this so that they do not die. And it says it's a permanent statute throughout their generations. Okay? For Aaron and his descendants. Look at Exodus chapter 38 now. Exodus 38 verse 8. This is talking about the construction of this bronze basin. I'm just going to read it and not comment a whole lot on it. There was a man by the name of Bezalel. He was was, uh, gifted in being able to construct things here. And in Exodus 38, verses 1 and 8, I won't read verse 1, but verse 8, it says, He, speaking of this Bezalel, made the bronze basin and its stand from the bronze mirrors of the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So this talks about Bezalel making this bronze laver. Now look at Exodus chapter 40. I want to read a few verses out of Exodus 40. The first verse we read is verse 7. This is when the tabernacle was set up on the new moon here in the second year of the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel. The tabernacle's being set up. Everything's being put in its proper place. Okay? One of the things that had to be put in its proper place was this bronze basin so that they could be washed with water. I want you to look at what happened here. Exodus 40, verse 7. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Verse 12. Then bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Clothe Aaron with the holy garments, anoint him and consecrate him so that he can serve me as a priest. This harkens back to Exodus 29 with the full immersion. 
Here we see that prior to the placing on of the holy garments and all the gear that the priest would wear, we see that they had to be washed in water. They had to be baptized. Hebrews 9.10 calls this a baptizo, a baptism. All right? Look at verses 30 through 31. It says there, He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. Moses, Aaron, and his sons washed their hands and feet from it. They washed whenever they came to the tent of meeting and approached the altar just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Yahweh had commanded Moses about the hands and the feet. Where? Back in Exodus 30. Yahweh had commanded Moses about washing them, their body, back in Exodus 29, which took place back in verse 12 of chapter 40. Hopefully you're taking notes. I know it's a lot to digest at one time. All right? Now look with me to Leviticus chapter 8, verse 6. Leviticus chapter 8, verse 6. If you read Exodus chapter 40, and Brother Arnold can testify to this, and he showed me this a long time ago, but if you read Exodus chapter 40 and just continue to read all the way through Leviticus, the thoughts do not stop. It's not as though Leviticus is just years and years and years after Exodus 40. You have the setting up of the tabernacle in Exodus 40, and Yahweh continues in Leviticus to be telling him commands about sacrifices and offerings and everything. And it's not until Leviticus 8 that the command to wash Aaron and his sons with water is taking place. Leviticus chapter 8, verse 6. It says, Then Moses presented Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. He put the tunic on Aaron, so forth and so on. This is where the command in Exodus 29, 1 through 5, is fulfilled in the tabernacle at this bronze basin, or this laver, as some translations say. So we see in Leviticus 8, 6, that Moses took Aaron and his sons, washed them with water prior to them placing on the holy garments and beginning their temple ministry. In all likelihood, when their whole body was washed with water, it was probably Moses baptizing them in that bronze basin. That's, that's a great possibility there. After that took place, then each time they came in, they were to dip their hands and their feet into that water and wash them. Okay? <clears throat> Look with me now as, as I close out to 1 Kings chapter 7. 1 Kings chapter 7. We see also that in Solomon's temple there was something called a reservoir, at least in this translation. Literally, it's the great sea. The Israelites called any large body of water a sea. And thus, here we see in Solomon's temple something took place of the bronze basin once the temple was solidified or placed in its, in its proper place there at Yahweh's city, at Yahweh's chosen place there in Jerusalem. Okay? 1 Kings 7, 23-26. This is talking about the construction of things in the temple. It says, He made the cast metal reservoir 15 feet from brim to brim, perfectly round. It was 7.5 feet high and 45 feet in circumference. Ornamental gourds encircled it below the brim, ten every half yard, completely encircling the reservoir. The gourds were cast in two rows when the reservoir was cast. It stood on twelve oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, three facing east. The reservoir was on top of them, and all their hindquarters were toward the center. The reservoir was three inches thick, and its rim was fashioned like the brim of a cup or of a lily blossom, and it held 11,000 gallons. Now this reservoir was what took the place of the bronze basin once the tabernacle didn't have to be 
carted anymore through the wilderness. Once they came to a, a, a location of worship there in a the city that Yahweh chose, this is what took the place of the bronze basin. This was likened to the bronze basin. Even though we don't get the dimensions of the bronze basin, we do get the dimensions of the reservoir. And literally, this reservoir in Hebrew is called the sea, Brother Dan, because it's a large body of water, 11,000 gallons. 11,000 gallons. All right, this is kind of like a set-apart swimming pool, right? It's a holy pool, I guess we could say. That's what this is. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> 1 Kings chapter 7 goes on to mention other basins. When we read in that chapter, made under King Solomon. But the reservoir, or the sea, was used by the priest according to Second Chronicles. Look with me to Second Chronicles. Keep flipping here to Second Chronicles chapter 4. Second Chronicles chapter 4. Verses 1 through 6. Chronicles is like another book that records the same thing that Kings does. And in Second Chronicles 4, 1 through 6, it says this. He made a bronze altar 30 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 15 feet high. Verse 2. Then he made the cast metal reservoir. 15 feet from brim to brim, perfectly round. It was 7.5 feet high and 45 feet in circumference. The lightness of oxen was below it, completely encircling it. Ten every half yard, completely surrounding the reservoir. The oxen were cast in two rows where the reservoir was cast. It stood on twelve oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The reservoir was on top of them, and all their hindquarters were toward the center. The reservoir was three inches thick, and its rim was fashioned like the brim of a cup or a lily blossom. It could hold 11,000 gallons. He made ten basins for washing, and he put five on the right and five on the left. This is apart from the reservoir. But the rest of verse 6 says, the parts of the burnt offerings were rinsed in them, but the reservoir was used by the priests for washing. Now this, brothers and sisters, as we'll get to at a later time, is a good picture, a good type of full immersion for baptism. You don't need 11,000 gallons of water if you're not going to do some immersion. You understand what I'm saying? 11,000 gallons. This is likened to that bronze basin. There are various other places in the Tanakh that mention washing with water. Yahweh's will will get to them next week. So, hey, hold your horses and stay tuned for next week. We'll continue this as we close. Let's stand and close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your son. Thank you for baptism, Father. I pray that we would grow in our understanding of it and learn, Father Yahweh, about its origins, where it came from, what it means to us today in the sense of baptism into the Messiah. Father, I glorify you and I praise you. Bring us back here next week to do the same, Father, to teach your word and to meditate, to pray, and to sing songs to you. And we just love you so much, Father Yahweh. Give us a great evening tonight. May we be ready to go back to work in the morning, refreshed and rejuvenated. We glorify your name, and it's through your Son we pray. Amen. Amen.